there's the smell of the thing, you know, uh, the smell of the rosin, the smell of the metal strings at the wood. It's like someone speaking to me. Do so 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 me fa 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 re so mi la so mi do so Contemporary music. You could say it's the music dialect of our time. No, it's not like that. No, it goes like to sit quietly and listen attentively can be a transformative experience. Talent as I say, is convenient, but discipline is indispensable. Hello, welcome to another episode of Talking Experiments from Borealis, a festival for experimental music in Bergen, Norway. I'm Christiane Milgo, and in this week I'm meeting the violinist Ricardo Odriozola to hear about his preparations for his upcoming performance at this year's Borealis. Welcome, Ricardo. Thank you. I met Ricardo on a snowy Tuesday afternoon in a sound studio in Bergen. How was your day so far? It's a... Uh, Very white outside. I practiced and I play for one of the composers that I'm going to be playing in March this morning and then I had lunch with my daughter. So it's been a nice day. Ricardo Otriozzola is a Spanish musician who has performed as a soloist, chamber musician, orchestra leader and conductor throughout Europe and North America. Since 1987, Ricardo has been a teacher of violin and chamber music at Bergen's Greek Academy, where he also conducts a chamber orchestra and a sinfonietta. So you're from Spain? I'm from Spain. Did you have music when you grew up? Was it part of your everyday life back then? It's a funny story, you see, because I'm a violinist. Um, that's in itself not remarkable at all. Uh, until you realize that I grew up in a fishing town in northern Spain where no one had ever played the violin before. So why should a kid growing in this fishing town in northern Spain want to play the violin. Well, there's a back story to this. Uh, my mother uh, grew up with a professional musician as a father who taught all his children the basics of music, reading music and sight singing and so on. Solfesh, was it's called, you know, that's what we <laughs> learn in Spain. And her oldest brother was a very talented violinist. Uh, he unfortunately died uh, young. He was 38, I believe. Got sick and died uh, five years before I was born. Well, I, I grew up listening to stories about my uncle, my uncle mm. this and this and that, and that. At one point, much later on in life, my mother told me the story that uh, once she, she had a friend, a lady friend who was very much into uh, spiritualism and so on. So she invited my mother to go to a seance with her, the cold, the dead, and all that stuff, you know. So my mother, uh, whatever, sure, why not? She was neither interested or not interested. She said, okay, play a new experience, it will be fun, you know. So she went along. And so the medium at one point asked, uh, well, you're new here, would you like to contact somebody? Says, okay, okay, well, contact my brother then. So, sure enough, they, they found her brother. And uh, he told uh, the medium that he wanted to come back to Earth. He wanted to come back. And wow. that, that, that was that. Uh, a few days later, my mother found out that she was pregnant with me. Okay, so, uh, well, 
make what you like. I have of goosebumps. It. Make what you like of it. <laughs> but uh, may, okay, so that can't perhaps uh, explain why this uh, young kid uh, decided that he wanted to play the violin where there was no context whatsoever. I was attracted to it. So I kept telling my parents, you know, oh, violin, violin. So um, my mother one day came home with a guitar. She bought me a guitar. I'm thinking back, this, she was kind of uh, trying to deter me from learning the violin because she had grown up with two professional musicians, very close. She saw very close how hard work it was to mm. become a professional musician, particularly a violinist. I mean, my uncle uh, practiced all day long. And it's, you know, really hard work. So she bought me this guitar, hoping, I suppose, that I would forget about the violin. You know, I was very into it, and I got lots of music books where I learned uh, to guitar pieces and so on. But uh, what happened next was that uh, we were visiting my mother's youngest sister, who had uh, two violins, two old violins in her house. So I asked her, can I try the violin? Can I try one of the violins? And she was like, oh, you have to be careful, you know. Oh. So apparently I took up the violin. I was, uh, I was nine by this so I took up the violin, and my mother told me, I wasn't aware of this, but told me later that they, you know, they look at each other. And, cause the first thing I did when I took up the violin is to play a very long, sustained note with the bow, uh, which is actually one of the hardest things to do for a string player. I mean, when you start playing the, the string instrument, you don't start by playing a long note. You kind of fool around it. I'm going to make lots of noises, you know. The first thing I did was play a long note. So my aunt said, okay, okay, you can borrow the violin then. <laughs> The thing with the violin was sort of a, a physical experience. It's sort of like falling in love. You know, is that there's the smell of the thing. You know, uh, the smell of the rosin, the smell of the metal strings at the wood. You know, it, it was something very different and very appealing at the same time. Mm. And the fact that, you know you scrape the strings and you got the sound out of it. Um, so that was uh, my entry into music and making but as I said I already had uh, about a year and a half of guitar playing before that mm. of making different kinds of sounds and writing my own music of course it's not only the violin it's all the music that uh, I heard on the radio you know my father uh, was an amateur singer uh, he loved opera mm. uh, he, uh, he was a tenor in the choral society in the local choral society so he uh, played the radio all the time. You know, I discovered all the classics in that way, you know, Mozart, Beethoven and Bach. Uh, my first uh, record, LP, that I had uh, was a birthday from my parents when I was eight years old. It was a record of Andres Segovia playing Bach on the guitar. Yeah, that's how I entered into music in a practical way, mm. by, by playing the mm. guitar and then the violin. Um, I remember being asked by a school friend when I was eight years old what I wanted to be when I grew up. <laughs> and I said, I want to be a musician. So I, I knew by the, uh, by the age of eight that I wanted to be a musician. There was never a question of doing something else. When I started taking lessons from a man in Bilbao, it was the big city. I didn't live in the big city, I lived in a smaller town. His name was Ernesto Ayo. 
I asked Ricardo about his formal training and he lit up. Demetrio Amigo was his name. The fact that I feel comfortable on stage today, that's down to Demetrio. His voice was warm but firm, as he mentioned an overflow of teachers and mentors he'd had from his early childhood up until adult life with an extreme gratitude. Jose Antonio Eguia. He took me on uh, as a student of harmony for two years. Francisco Comesaña was his name. And it was then that he offered to teach me for free, actually. Pascual Etazone is one of them, and Leslie Hurwitz, the other. Uh, they were the two first people who, to write music for me, especially. It was obvious that he wanted to pay back credit to those teachers whom he credits aspects of his artistic abilities now. I, I met the man who would become my teacher in, the, in my um, university years, Zvi Seidlin. Very important. He gave me high standards. So he would say things like, you're playing flippantly or you're fiddling, you know. And then from the second year, he changed completely. He became extremely hard on me. But of course, in retrospect, this was necessary. Would you like to meet Raoul Severud? This was my chance to work with a really great composer. So this was a turning point uh, in my life. That's how I came to Bergen. Had I not met Raoul Severud, I might not have come. So I haven't regretted it for a minute. So do you think talent or discipline comes first in your world? Talent is convenient. Mm. Okay. And it's also the way into a, a discipline. However, if you are going to get anywhere whatsoever, you have to develop a discipline. Talent as I say, is convenient, uh, but discipline is indispensable. Mm, that's true. Um, I'd like to ask you some more questions about your music. Where does your passions lie? In music? Well, <laughs> how long do you have? I... <laughs> No, I could talk about uh, this for uh, three three hours. No, look, uh, my passions. Um, well, I love the classics, obviously. I mean, but the, this is almost like a matter of fact. Um, but I very soon realized that my main interest lies in music that's slightly off the beaten track. Yeah. Uh, music that is of, of high quality, of course, but which not everybody is playing. Mm. Yeah. And this has become um, the word mission. That's kind of too, you know, grandiose. But uh, it has it has become uh, my path. Mm-hmm. You know, advocating uh, those who don't get so much attention from you know the music establishment or the media. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, because you both work as a composer and a teacher. Mm-hmm. And you're, of course, a violinist, so you're a performer. Um, and you have your own record label. Mm-hmm. So would you say that this is a vision that links all these different fields together? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. The, thanks for mentioning the record company. It's a very small, extremely small thing. It's called Amethyst Records. I basically put out uh, records that would be very difficult or impossible to put out uh, by with the uh, big companies yeah. mm. and there you have everything from solo Bach to improvised music so very different uh, records and uh, very varied uh. 
there's this combination of the classics mm. and contemporary music mm. in your practice. Why is this combination so interesting? Contemporary music for me is very natural because um, you could say it's the music dialect of our time. Uh, Mozart is is sort of like um, I don't know, like uh, reading Shakespeare, right? I mean, you recognize that it's English, but it's very strange old English. So you mm. have to think about it. You know, Mozart is speaking a dialect that is not ours. But of course, one has one has to admire and love that music and Mozart and Bach and Beethoven, etc., etc., etc. It holds so well because it's uh, it's structured very very strong. And, of course, it has the divine spark. But uh, for me, it's, it's, uh, it's necessary to combine both. I couldn't either do only classical or do only contemporary. It's nice to go back to the other one one has spent time with the one. Yeah, They inform each other. And so do you think that um, combining the two makes the music more accessible? to a wider audience or more niche? I don't know if it makes it more accessible. I try to choose music that um, it's not too abstruse. I mean, that connects with listeners uh, on an emotional level rather than an intellectual level. So mostly, I mean, because you have to have the intellect as well. Mm. Yes. Uh, of course, this concert that I'm doing for Borealis now, it's um, I consciously chose to play a program that's so far out to uh, first of all to challenge myself and also to um in a way to make a point says uh, yeah i can do this too you know well having said that i mean the uh, the range of the program that i'm doing in borealis is, is quite wide i mean you have everything from completely uh, crazy unhinged uh, avant-garde uh, out there stuff to relatively uh, traditional writing also you know So it's a wide spectrum, but hopefully it's all music that people will uh, relate to and get excited about. Looking very much forward to that. Oh, yeah. Is yes. it going well? It's going a lot better than I, I thought, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, you see, it's it's all, um, obviously it's all contemporary music. There's a completely new piece, a commission. And there are two pieces I've never played before. And there are three pieces that I haven't played for maybe 30 or 25 years. But they're all very demanding. So uh, learning the new pieces, that's taken, that's taken quite a lot of time. But it's going surprisingly well. Uh, you know, I was expecting it to be like really, really awful. Okay. And in what way is it demanding? It's completely unpredictable. Well, I'll tell you uh, the two hardest pieces, the ones that I have never played before. One of them is by our current uh, composition professor at the Greek Academy, uh, Daniel Petrbiro. It took me about two weeks just to figure out how to play it. Yeah, so that's the one piece I've never played before. It's very colorful, uh, extremely colorful uh, music. The other one is a much longer piece, it's about 10 minutes. And it's difficult because uh, most of the notes are quarter tones. Okay, in the conservatory the training, we are taught to learn to play in tune the twelve notes of the chromatic mm. scale, and we work for years on end to play in tune those twelve notes. And now I'm asked, <laughs> I've been being asked to play twenty-four notes, and they also have to be in tune. So 
<laughs> having to use a lot of time to find those notes in between the cracks, so to say. Mm. And a lot of it goes very fast. So it's not just a matter of, you know, okay, play a long note and then you have time to think about the next note. No, it's not like that. No, it goes like All right. So I basically have hectic. to. Yeah. Oh, yes. But it's really fun. And and when you talk about the pieces, you have some words like challenging and mm. uh, very difficult. Is anything too crazy for you? Where do you draw the line? As long as uh, you don't damage the instrument or yourself, everything is okay. No, it's good, good to be challenged, of course. No, it's, I enjoy that. <laughs> somewhere that your approach to composing uh, is to make scores that communicate directly with the audience mm -hmm. so without the need for an intellectual layer or particular knowledge yeah. um, why is this so necessary for you the way in to uh, a listener is uh, by connecting emotionally mm -hmm. once you have that you can go in any direction that you want and how do you as a composer create that connection I have to become my own listener, you see, because when when you get a musical idea, it usually happens by, sometimes it comes to one's head, uh, that also happens, but mostly it's by fiddling around on the piano, something, oh, a little snippet of melody comes or a chord change that's, you know. So I usually keep repeating it for maybe two weeks. But on the piano? Yeah, on the piano. Yes, That's yes. interesting. Yeah, yeah, it, it has to be uh, not my own instrument because that comes with a lot of baggage, you know. I mean, yeah, okay. it, it has to be an instrument that I can't play properly. So kind of objective yeah. uh, artifact, you know, that may, plays the notes. But, you know, I have enough, I, I know where all the notes are in the piano and I have enough, I, I can't play the piano properly and I have technique or facility, but I, I can get around and play Mm. Uh, what I need to listen to. Um, so, That's yeah. an interesting process, I think. And yeah. I use it also for learning uh, pieces of music that are on my own. As a matter of fact, when I get a new piece that I need to learn, I usually will play it on the piano for the same reason. For the same reason that I I learn it in an objective way. I see what's there instead of immediately putting the violin my whole history of violin playing on top of it. It's very important that people listen. So use their ears actively, uh, attentively. Uh, the, which, going back to you know the, the passage of time and so on, it's something that uh, has become more and more rare nowadays. The attention span of most people has become very short. So to sit quietly and listen attentively can be a trans transformative experience and I wish it to my listeners I want people to have a great experience uh, but it will only happen if uh, the listener is pay paying attention mm. in the same way that I'm 100% focused on what I'm doing mm. the music uh, changes when the according not only to the quality of the playing but to the quality of the listening that's yeah. true yes 
Which challenges do you think that classical music face today? Is there anything that you can tell from the inside? <sighs> yeah, this is an important question. I'm not sure I have a very enlightening answer to that, really. Perhaps main hindrance is that we think of music in different genres. That's a hindrance, I think. Mm. On the other hand, you know, a lot of people in the classical world have caught wind of this, you know, it's like, and we end up with kind of crossover of fusion projects, which I think is not always the right way to do it. This, uh, for example, it goes both ways, really. It's like playing pop music uh, with a symphony orchestra or rock music with a symphony orchestra or putting a rock beat on classical music. Uh, that's sort of a Frankenstein kind of hybrid. That it, is, it doesn't help either of the two. Okay, will it get polluted in a way? Yeah, I mean, rock music, if it's really uh, good, has an extraordinary power can really move you emotionally and physically. And classical music, again, if it's played with full commitment and listened to with full commitment, can also be a life-changing experience. So, of course, there's all these attempts everywhere to uh, attract young people to classical concerts. And I'm not sure it's uh, being done the right way. Uh, music speaks uh, best when it's being done in its own premises. In the 90s and early 2000, uh, I, I did a lot of uh, school concert tours. And uh, you, know, you get the kids, the school kids have musicians playing very close to them. You get this uh, physical experience of, okay, there's this person really going for it, you know, scraping the violin mm. and a person singing or hitting the piano, you know, it's like, wow, you know. But that is the real thing. We didn't try to uh, sweeten it or put a, a pop beat on it or something. You know, it's, it was the real thing. And then uh, kids, well, not all of them, obviously, but there's always going to be somebody who remembers, wow, this was, that was really something, you know. Then maybe when they grow up, they uh, do want to explore it further. I don't think it can be spoon-fed or, or forced. You know, if you're going to present classical music, then it says classical music. This is it. You know, mm. and uh, yeah, come and listen. And if it's going to be rock music, then then it's rock music. You already mentioned it a bit, but do you have any recommendations on how to be a great listener? If you want to stretch your ears and be able to listen more carefully to mm. experimental or um, contemporary music, mm. do you have any recommendations how to do that? I do have, okay, I do have two, two different ways of listening that work equally well for me. Uh, where it regards uh, complex music, music that's hard to digest in the first listening, okay? Uh, one is obviously to listen to it very attentively and many times and try to understand what's going on. Yeah. Uh, and the other is to do the exact opposite, like have it in the background <laughs> while you're making supper, for example, yeah? And let it wash over you. 
all this complex stuff without wondering what's happening. Just simply, it's like, okay, you, you enter, enter into a room from the street and there is a painting. And you look at it for 10 seconds and then you go out again. You look at the whole picture without f- focusing on the details. But you still get a general impression of what kind of picture it is. Is it bright? Is it dark? Is it uh, choppy? Is it uh, smooth? To uh, have music in the background that you hear but not listen to. Is that difficult for you? To have music only in the background? As no, such a trained listener as, and player? As long as I don't read. You see, that's my problem. I can't read and listen to music at the same time. <laughs> the reason for that for me is that, uh, well, <laughs> back to my earliest years as a child, learning solfege, do, re, mi, fa, sol, and si. Uh, the thing is, I, I developed um, perfect pitch. Eventually, I, I just realized, at one point I realized I had perfect pitch. I could tell the difference between an A and a B. And da, da, da. So, But what happens to me is when I hear a note, I hear the name. It's like someone speaking to me. Do, sol, 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 mi, fa, 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 re. Yeah. So I can't do that and read at the same time. I just I just can't. I had to it's switch. It's two to languages at once. Yeah, maybe. Two, two languages at yeah. once. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ricardo. It's a pleasure. All right. anything you would like to add? There's one piece I would love to play which I commissioned from the composer Ruth Backe. Uh, but I, I commissioned the violin concerto from her in 2007 and I have tried and tried and sent uh, suggestions to orchestras, talk to conductors and so on. It's just uh, no one uh, orchestras never answer anyways. You know, so so I don't know what to do to get this piece played, but I, I really would love to play it. It's a great piece, and uh, you know, it's just a shame that it's lying there. If there's any adventurous conductor out there who is not uh, you know, afraid of bankrupting their orchestra or something by <laughs> playing an unknown piece played by an unknown violinist and so on, you know, I would really encourage you to check it out. Thanks so much for talking to me, Ricardo Adriozzola. Ricardo will perform live at Borealis Festival for Experimental Music on the 20th of March at Gimli. And you can see a digital premiere of that performance via the Borealis website on Sunday the 21st of March. All of the music you've heard today was performed by Ricardo Odriozola and more, and you can read all of the specifics in the text below this episode. You can find more details of all of our projects at borealisfestival.no and do check out the other episodes of Talking Experiments to hear more about our 2021 festival. Make sure to spread the word and give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Talking Experiments was presented and produced by me, Christiane Milko, for Borealis. <laughs>